Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the radio show featuring your physician hosts, Dr. Tom McGovern and Dr. Chris Stroud, where we discuss important health-related questions from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, we have a true lifesaver as a guest. His name is Dr. George Delgado, and he's going to tell us how he and his team are saving lives by helping women around the world reverse their chemical abortions before it's too late. But first, Chris is going to grace us with some recent medical news. Tom, today's news comes to us from a, um, a product-related story, and the product is Esure, E-S-S-U-R-E, and several lawsuits against its manufacturer, Bayer, Bayer the Aspirin Company. Now, that, that name, Esure, reminds me of something called Ensure, which is a, a type of... Um food for people that have trouble digesting. I yeah. take it this has nothing to do with that. Nothing at all, but it is an interesting, <laughs> it's an interesting finding. Uh, the, the people are charging the device is causing some really serious injuries and complications, even some deaths. Uh, now, the story is spreading all over the web, but NBC News ran a piece about it earlier this month, and now it's rapidly sort of headed towards viral status. It's marketed as permanent birth control that, you know, quote, works with your body to prevent pregnancy, close quote. That just sounds ridiculous. <laughs> your body doesn't work to prevent pregnancy. Yeah, it involves an office-based procedure that's done by a gynecologist called hysteroscopy, where a small camera goes through the cervix up into the body of the uterus, and then these little metal coils are placed into the opening of the fallopian tubes. Do they look like little springs? Have you seen They pictures? do. They look exactly like little springs okay. if you go to their website. It causes scarring in the fallopian tube, and so that prevents sperm from getting out into the tube and reaching the eggs. It's really analogous to one having one's tubes tied. Uh, the coil contains nickel, titanium, platinum, uh, and some other things. And they're all natural. Yes. Yeah, that's right. They're natural elements. <laughs> and gluten-free. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> the FDA confirmed as part of this report that uh, over the past 15 years, that's 2002 to 2017, it's received almost 27,000 reports of problems with this device, including pain, heavier bleeding, irregular bleeding, headaches, fatigue. Patients are reporting that the device becomes dislodged. They've had to have surgery to have it removed. And then there are problems with removing it. It breaks into pieces and leaves a little piece of the metal scattered throughout the abdomen. Uh, the FDA also acknowledged as part of this NBC study, our report, that there have been at least eight adult deaths attributed to the Esher product. Deaths? How do you die from a little spring in your fallopian tubes? Well, if it migrates out of the toe tube and perforates the colon, that would allow spillage of all the colon contents into the abdomen, and the patient dies from sepsis. Oh, bad infection. Yeah. The FDA just announced that the manufacturer is now only allowed to sell it to people who are using a special consent form that has to be signed by the physician and by the patient describing all of these problems. That's a pretty uncommon step for the FDA to take. Why don't they just take it off the market? Well, it sure looks like we're headed that way, although it turns out the FDA removing medical products from the market has sort of a long and sordid history. The bottom line is it isn't done very often uh, because there are so many conflicting interests. But since launching this product back in 2002, Bayer reports they've sold over 750,000 devices worldwide. They acknowledge that the majority of them are in America, but they don't keep country-specific data. At least it's not publicly available. Brazil recently pulled it off the market. Some European countries are pulling it off the market. I suspect we'll eventually see that here. And what year did it come out? 2002. Oh, it's been around that long. Yeah, it was really presented to physicians, to obstetricians, gynecologists as the greatest thing in the world because, after all, sterilization is our goal, uh, <laughs> that it could, it could be accomplished in the office setting so you don't have to go to surgery to have your tubes tied. It strikes me as funny in a way that so many people who are behind contraception would probably believe in human evolution and that the goal of evolution is more and healthier offspring. Yet they hold evolution on the pedestal, yet they're plugging up the making of more and healthier offspring. It just seems kind of backwards to me. Well, if we needed another example, Tom, of how the church's teaching on contraception is spot on and correct, I think we have it. You know, mutilating one's reproductive organs, tubal ligation, vasectomy, placement of this metal spring in your fallopian tubes, 
it's not a good thing. It's it's not a good thing. And, and the church has known this for generations. Even before there were metal springs to put in your fallopian tubes. <laughs> Absolutely. I think our listeners have to know that there's better ways to plan and manage the size of their families. They don't have to mutilate their reproductive tract to do it. That's just horrifying that such devices exist and we, we think they're normal. And we hold them up as being technological marvels. Well, if you just joined us, you're listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. We've just finished a medical news item for today, and now we're on to Chris's Women's Health Care Tip of the Day. Well, you'll like this, Tom, because today's Women's Health Care Tip is not just for women. Oh, you mean it's for the other kind? Yes, exactly. Um, we're Men. <laughs> children. <laughs> we're operating under the assumption that the, that gender is a, is a bimodal distribution. There are men and there are women. Uh, created equally, but vastly differently. Thanks be to God. <laughs> <laughs> so today's health tip is related to health tips, uh, and, what, <laughs> and what I would call what I would call know your numbers. <laughs> okay, right. And by that I mean the importance of knowing some critical clinical information about yourself, about your health status, so that you can track through time in an effort to prevent disease or at least lessen its effects. You know, most people, especially men, know more <laughs> about their favorite sports team than they do their own health system. But right? sports is often numbers, so maybe they'll like this this tip. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, an important part of your health is understanding where you are versus where you should be in terms of a few key indicators. In my practice, I'm always surprised by how patients often don't know about their own health. I mean, most of us carry around, if we're millennials, we have it stapled to our hand, a smartphone <laughs> yes. uh, that has virtually unlimited memory technological capabilities that we could have never dreamed of just a generation ago. And that's a perfect place to maintain some critical health data if they want to use it that way. So let's look at some key numbers that we should all carry around in some hard drive or another. I would start off by saying blood pressure, right? What was your most recent blood pressure? Generally, we like that to be about 130 over 80 or less. How about your cholesterol? Good cholesterol and bad cholesterol. Uh, the good cholesterol, or the total, I should say, should be about 200 or less. We should know what our most recent cholesterol is. How about a fasting blood glucose? That should generally be less than 100. Um, another great one is body mass index, or BMI. And you can go on to BMI or bodymassindex.com, type in your height and your weight, and it'll give you your BMI. How about your waist size? Generally, for women, it should be less than 35 inches. For men, it should be less than 40 inches. And then a couple of pet peeves of mine, the results and the last date of a few key things. For women, the results and the date of your last mammogram, the results and date of a screening colonoscopy, that's for men or women over the age of 50, or the results and the date of your last bone density screening, that's generally women over the age of 65. And also for women, the results and date of your last pap smear. These are critical items that we should all carry around with us. How about your immunization status? Oh, boy, that question comes up all the time, especially, you know, this time of year I'm filling out camp forms for my kids, and they're all <laughs> asking, and it's like, uh, where's the data, honey? <laughs> Have you been vaccinated against hepatitis B? Did you get a flu shot? Have you had the meningococcal or the pneumococcal vaccine or the pertussis or, as we say, the Tdap? And the last thing I would add to the list, and I'd be interested to get your input on this, Tom, I'd like a list of your medications and the doses that you're taking. Now, we should all, for those of us who take medicines, and most of us are taking some medicine or another, we should really know the names of those medications and the doses. And then finally, a list of your drug allergies. And more specifically, what type of allergy is it? So many patients are labeled as penicillin allergic, and we find out that, you know, they took penicillin and they got an upset stomach. That's not an allergy. But they're labeled in the hospital medical record as being pen allergic, and, and that can prevent them from getting life-saving care sometimes, when in reality it's not an allergy at all. Uh, in our office, I like our nurses to put down what the reaction is. Uh, that's a broader term than allergy. Allergy is a very specific term related to the immune system. There's a, uh, several, well, there's four classic different types of allergic reactions that you can have. 
Uh, but an upset stomach or getting tired or lightheaded, those are not allergic reactions. I had a patient tell me once that she was allergic to morphine. I said, oh, really? What happens when you take morphine? She says, I get all loopy and want to go to sleep. <laughs> That's not an allergic reaction. That's an adverse reaction, but it's not an, an allergy. So I'd like to leave our listeners with this, that this charge, and that is know some critical health statistics about yourself. You certainly can't begin to try to improve those statistics until you know what they are. That is good advice. And now, with our patented trivia music playing in the background, I have heard it frequently stated that it is harder to get into veterinary school than medical school. Is it true? Or is it a myth? Do more people really want to learn about all those different species where us doctors who go to medical school only have to learn about one species? Two if you count men and women separately. Tom, you've done a great job. Now we're going we're gonna to make somebody mad. Either the veterinarians <laughs> listen to us or all of the physicians listen to us. Or, or maybe we can all be mad together. I, I'm good at that. It's, it's one of my superpowers, according to my wife. Uh, but no, is it harder to get into vet school or med school? I wouldn't want to have to learn about all those patients that they have, all, that, all those species. And plus, their patients can't answer questions like ours can. When they choose to. When they choose to. <laughs> so stay tuned. After our interview today, we'll be back with the answer to our medical trivia question. We're back with more Dr. Doctor, and it gives me great pleasure to introduce Dr. George Delgado. He's out in San Diego where he's medical director of Culture of Life Family Services, which is a nonprofit medical facility dedicated to offering pregnant women a life-firming alternative to abortion. In fact, one of their taglines is, women who change their minds have a second chance at choice with what we are going to be talking about. Dr. Delgado, I believe, is a medical hero, and he's going to tell us how he and his team have been doing that, saving babies' lives. Dr. George Delgado, welcome to Dr. Doctor. Thanks. It's great to be here. And we mostly want to talk about a recent publication of yours in a journal called Issues in Law and Medicine. It's a peer-reviewed medical journal. And the name of the study is a case series detailing the successful reversal of the effects of mifepristone using progesterone. And I'm sure that just flew over most of our listeners' heads. Dr. Delgado, can you parse that and make sense of it to the average American English-speaking person? Sure. So these days, 30 to 40% of all abortions in the United States are not surgical abortions where instruments are used to put into the woman's womb. Instead, the woman takes a drug that kills the preborn baby and then a second drug that causes the uterus to contract to expel the remains of that baby. So this is called medical abortion, and it's approved in the United States up to 10 weeks of pregnancy, so almost the entire first trimester. And the main medication used for this in the United States is called mifepristone. Some people who were around uh, and were adults before 2000 might remember this being called RU486. RU486 was the developmental name given to this drug by Russell Uclaff, which was the French pharmaceutical company that developed it. Once it was ready for market, then they developed the name Mifepristone, and that's the name that stuck. There's also a brand name called Mifeprix. On the Planned Parenthood website, they might refer to it as a pill abortion. And people who are listening need to know that this is very different from the so-called Plan B or morning after pill. That is taken generally up to 72 hours after intercourse, and it has, the intention is really contraceptive, although it in it of itself can be abortifacient. But the key is that the woman who takes the so-called morning after pill doesn't know if she's pregnant or not. And if she is pregnant, she's very early in her pregnancy. This medical abortion with mifepristone is a woman who knows she's pregnant, up to 10 weeks of pregnancy, and takes it to deliberately abort her, her baby. So we've had women, we know there are women because they've called us, who after taking the first drug, the mifepristone, change their minds. And I know that sounds astounding, and the, the people who are against what we're doing say that, no, nobody ever changes their <laughs> mind. But we all know, and, and, and the three of us are physicians. We're very well-educated, and we're very determined in what we do. We're very careful in how we plan. All of us have changed our minds after making big decisions in our lives. I know I have. 
And so we know that these women do sometimes change their minds. When they change their minds, now we offer them a second chance at choice. We can give them supplemental progesterone. Progesterone is the hormone of pregnancy. That's why it's called progesterone, progestation. It's an acronym, actually. And we give progesterone in a supplemental fashion because we know that the way mifepristone works as a abortifacient as causing the medical abortion is that it blocks progesterone receptors. It gets in the way of progesterone, so the progesterone can't do the good things it does to keep a pregnancy going. Well, if we give higher levels of progesterone, the supplemental progesterone, we know that the progesterone can outcompete the mifepristone and get in its way so that more progesterone effect can be had, and then finally the mifepristone washes out of the system. So using that strategy, we are really happy to report with this new published article that you mentioned that with our best protocols, the success rate of reversal is 64 to 68%. So we're really excited about that. So, and George, if I could interrupt you, if, sure, you, if you would ahead. break it down for our listeners, the time frame that we're talking about. So the woman takes the mifepristone, and there is a certain amount of delay before she takes uh, the, the next medication. Could you walk our listeners through what that looks like? Sure. So in the, the normal protocol of the medical abortion, the woman takes the mifepristone. Generally, it's given, it's taken there in a medical um, medical facility, and it's observed. But the actually, the new FDA label does not specify that it has to be observed, but they have to at least pick it up at the medical facility. Then they're giving four pills in a little brown bag, and those four pills are misoprostol, also known as Cytotec. And that's the second drug that causes the uterine contractions. And they're instructed usually to take that 48 hours later. So they have a, there's a 48-hour window there where they're not doing anything except waiting. Mm-hmm. So that's generally the window when women call us and they have second thoughts. They want to see if we can help them reverse the medical abortion. If they've taken that second medication, we don't have a direct antidote to that like we do with the first medication. We would still try to help them, of course, but we don't have a direct antidote. So those women were not included in our study, just the women who had only taken the first medication, the mifepristone. Sure. And maybe now you could walk us through sort of in, a, in an example way. So the woman takes the first medication, she changes her mind. How does she find her way to someone to get this potentially life-saving progesterone? Well, once a woman changes her mind, there, there are a few ways where she could find help and First, I'll tell you the less common way and then the more common way. The less common way would be if she's fortunate enough to have a pro-life doctor like one of you, and she can call you and say, you know, doctor, um, I've taken this mifepristone. I changed my mind. Can you help me? And you're familiar with the protocol for giving progesterone, and you would go ahead and treat her. The more common way is that they reach out, and and unfortunately, sometimes they will call the abortion center because uh, that's who they know. And they're given misinformation, unfortunately. We've had anecdotes where they've been told numerous times that that there's no possibility of reversing it or that your baby is sure to have birth defects. And those, that's misinformation, if not outright lies. So either the people at the abortion centers are not keeping up with the medical literature or they're misleading these people. So then what they do is they go online, like young people often do, and they do a search usually on their smartphone, and they search a how to reverse my medical abortion or something like that. And they find us, abortionpillreversal.com is our website. And Go when did the that website. start, that, that website? That website started in 2012. Okay, so which is when your study starts. Okay, go on, continue with what the, uh, what the woman does if she contacts so you. So then she reads, she reads the, on the website, which is really packed with information. In my opinion, they get more information actually about medical abortion there than they can actually get at the, at the medical abortion center. They get all the information they want, get a lot of information about reversal, and then if they want to proceed, they call the hotline. And the hotline nurses are available seven days a week. They would call and they get a very well-informed nurse on the other line of, of, of the telephone who could then answer any further questions that the woman might have and give her a very good explanation of what reversal would entail. And if the woman then agrees to it, then she gets a little more information from her and goes to our database of physicians and clinics and uh, mid-level practitioners and connects that woman to someone in her area. Wow. Once that connection is made, then the woman goes to see that practitioner and talks on the phone first and begins treatment. The treatment 
The two best protocols we have are either high-dose oral progesterone or injected progesterone. And the patient uh, and the practitioner then can decide which uh, course they want to take and go from there. Tom, I've got to tell you, in the interest of transparency, I've had the chance to participate um, in some of these. And the level of professionalism and dedication by these nurses on the phone, it's really remarkable. Uh, they have everything set up. It is so easy. All they needed me to do was say yes. So your referrals came from George's website. Absolutely. Got a phone call one afternoon, and the, the nurse essentially said to me, do you have time to save a life? Uh, <laughs> Good line. I like that. Well, George, now that I think our listeners understand, maybe you could walk us through this study of yours, because it certainly has uh, it's garnered you a fair amount of attention in these last couple of weeks. So let's talk to our listeners about what the study is and what it means. Sure. So this study, what we did was we when women would call the hotline, we would ask them if um, we could get their consent to follow them for a research study. And then we would track their information, assuming uh, for those who agreed, which all of them did, we would uh, communicate with them, get text messages, phone calls, talk to them, talk to the physicians, get feedback from them. And we were able then to follow these, these women and we described 261 who had successful reversals. And of these, like I said, our two best protocols were the high-dose oral protocol, which was a 68% success rate, the intramuscular injection, which is a shot in the bottom, 64%. We compared that to the historical control in the old literature of the mifepristone-only studies. When, when they first introduced mifepristone in research, they were only giving that one drug. So we, we had about eight studies where they followed those women with ultrasound, and they were able to figure out what percentage of the embryos and fetuses, the preborn babies, survived the mifepristone. And then so we used that as a control rate, 25%. So we were able to con compare our success rates to, their con to that control rate, and we saw that they had what we call statistical significance. What that means is that you do some statistical analysis to determine if your numbers really hold up or if they could just be due to chance. And the statistical analysis showed that it was highly statistically significant, and then we could count on those numbers and we could hang our hats on those, that, the, that this indeed does work and works much better than if the woman did nothing at all. We also looked at birth defects because, of course, people are always concerned about birth defects. And we were very excited to find that our birth defect rate was about the same as the general population. So with that, we can conclude that the reversal process does not increase the risk of birth defects. And therefore, the, and the, misa, or the mifepristone did not cause birth defects either, which you said uh, some of the abortion providers said it would. Right, exactly. Some of the comments they've received many times is your baby is sure to have birth defects. And this goes flies in the, fa in the face of that. Not only that, but previous studies on mifepristone sh show that it does not cause birth defects. And in fact, the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists came out with a practice bulletin in March of 2014, which they updated in 2016. And in it, they said that mifepristone does not cause birth defects. So we, we, we have a lot of good evidence on that side. And then on the progesterone side, progesterone has been used in pregnancy for 50 years and is considered very safe. And in fact, the in vitro fertilization doctors who have no interest in what we do, they routinely put women who are pregnant on progesterone for the first trimester. So they know that how important progesterone is and how safe it is. And on their website, they talk about the safety. And, and I'm also happy to say that this article that we've just published is now the largest case series following women whose babies were exposed to mifepristone to conclude that there are no um, birth defects. So it serves that, that important literature um, use also. George, this is absolutely fascinating. We need to go to a break now, but we'll be right back with more of this study, Saving Babies' Lives, with Dr. George Delgado on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to more Dr. Doctor as we continue our discussion with Dr. George Delgado and reversing the effects of the abortion pill. You know, George, in looking at your article, it seems that we could very safely say, worst case scenario, nothing happens. Best case scenario, we might save a pregnancy. 
what what argument against doing this is being propagated? Well, some of the arguments are they're saying that this is not a randomized controlled trial, that we should not be offering this to women because there's not enough evidence. And my response to that is that it's not a randomized controlled trial, which, by the way, we are designing one right now, and that's our next project. But this is the best wow. science we have, and this is a large group of women. And when you don't have any alternative therapy and you have a, a good-sized study that shows effectiveness and safety, why would you not offer it to women who are requesting it? And we're not forcing this on anyone. These are women who are requesting it, and they very, very desperately want to reverse what they've started. And so why not give them a second chance at choice? The analogy I use is that look at CPR, cardiopulmonary resuscitation. That's when someone has a heart attack and you do chest compressions and, and sometimes you give um, artificial breathing for that person. Well, when CPR was started, there were no randomized trials. They just thought this might work and they started using it. And in fact, there is no randomized placebo controlled trial because that would be unethical, just like it would be unethical for us to have a placebo arm where you don't give any treatment. But that didn't stop people from using CPR. And so if someone went down with a heart attack, do you think someone would say, no, don't do CPR <laughs> because there's Where's no the randomized controlled trial, right? Uh -huh. No, of course, you do what you think is best and you know that it's safe. So this is what we know is best and we know that it's safe. So it really, I think, is... It's not honoring the wishes of these women. And at this point, I think it's unethical not to offer this to women who desperately want to save their pregnancies, to save their preborn babies. It's interesting. Those who would advocate for choice and hold choice up and as sort of the ultimate good, uh, this is a woman choosing. She's just making a different choice. She's not making the choice that, that those in the abortion industry favor, but yet she's making a choice. Uh, you would think right. if, we, it, if we hold choice up, then any choice would be of equivalent good, wouldn't it? You would think. And it begs the question, then, are they really pro-choice or are they just pro-abortion? Yeah, I think I think most of our listeners know the answer to that yeah, question. Actions speak louder than yeah. words. A, a couple questions, you know, digging down in your, your data, it shows that of a little over 1,600 phone calls that you received, a little under half initiated the treatment. What kind of things go on in those other conversations of the women who decided not to do it after talking to one of your nurses? Well, they often express, they, they do express concerns about birth defects. And even though we give them our best reassurance and, and we give, you know, before the article was published, we give them a glimpse of what we knew already. And now, of course, we can say very authoritatively that yes. there's no um, birth defect risk. They also have a lot of pressures. They may have already been abandoned by the father of the baby, be it a boyfriend or a husband, or they have pressures from their parents. Their parents often are yes. encouraging or coercing them to have the medical abortion, and they threaten that they'll be kicked out if they don't uh, go forward with the medical abortion. So tremendous, tremendous pressures on these women. They feel like they're in a corner and that there's no way out except for having that abortion. To their credit, they're reaching out yes. to us to see what else can be done. But in the end, some of them just can't make that that choice. They just feel that um, they, they won't be able to bear the uh, consequences of, of what their families yeah. you know, George, do to them. I mean, I would, I would say in my 24 years as an OBGYN, I don't think I've ever seen a woman choose to have an abortion. Uh, the women that, that have them feel as though there is no choice. Uh -huh. uh, they're backed into that corner by all of the things that, that you say, but they, they aren't choosing among what they see as alternative means. They're backed into a corner with one choice only. George, how did you come up with the idea to do this? I mean, there must be some kind of uh, divine intervention here to, to get you moving on this path. I think, you know, it, it definitely was inspiration by the Holy Spirit. God prepares us for things down the road that we don't really realize. And and certainly God prepared me several years before when, first of all, he, he had me leave my private practice in Northern California to come and join uh, the nonprofit here in San Diego. That was the first thing. And even before I left Northern California, he led me to become trained in NAPRO technology, which is a new women's health science that I know the two of you know about that really looks to to uh, discover underlying defects in the reproductive system and then to seek to correct them. 
And many times, as part of NAPRO technology, we use progesterone when a woman is progesterone deficient. So I gained a great experience using progesterone. I was very comfortable using it in, in women who had low progesterone levels and early in pregnancy where it looked like they might miscarry. And I would give progesterone to oh. to try to prevent miscarriage. And then when, when mifepristone, then known as RU46, was being studied, I read a lot about it, and even before it was approved in the United States in the year 2000. So I knew exactly how it worked at it by blocking progesterone receptors. So I had those sort of two separate knowledge banks in my brain. Oh. And then one day I got a call from a sidewalk counselor named Terry Palmquist, who's in Bakersfield, California. And Terry has a website and, and carries a cell phone, so she fields calls from all over the country trying to help women who are in difficult situations related to pregnancy. And she got a call from a woman in El Paso, Texas, who had taken mifepristone and changed her mind and wanted to know if, if she could reverse and stop the medical abortion. So she called Terry. Terry called me because she had called me in the past for different uh, for advice regarding different pro-life cases. And I told her, well, Terry, I've never heard of anyone doing that before, but let me think about it. And then you know, the Holy Spirit put those two data banks in my brain uh, together, and I said, aha, maybe we could do this. <laughs> so I came up in my mind with a, with a protocol using inject, injected progesterone, but I still had to find someone to give it to her because she was in El Paso and I was in San Diego. So I was very fortunate. God led me to Dr. John Ellen Bellacura in El Paso, Texas, who courageously stepped forward and agreed to treat the woman and and agreed to my recommendations, and we were able to save that pregnancy and, and really help this mother. Thank Thanks be to God. Be to God. That, that's, that's how it first started. And what later year was on, that? I, I, that was in um, 2009, but then I learned maybe a year later that there was a doctor who had done it before me, Dr. Matthew Harrison, who's now working with me on abortion pill reversal, and he was in North Carolina and Two years earlier, pretty much the same scenario played out for him, and he had used progesterone and then subsequently included uh, Matt's uh, case in our first article that was published uh, back in 2012. Wow, that's outstanding. You know, um, in, in reading the popular press and preparing for our show, I, I went to ACOG, the American College of OBGYN, and in their news release, they mentioned your study. And it's kind of interesting, they say, published in the Issues of Law and Medicine, comma, uh, an anti-abortion-leaning organization, yes. comma, and then they continue describing it. Now, that not that interesting? They never say published in you know, the American Journal of OBGYN, an abortion-minded uh, <laughs> publication. But with that in mind, what, what led you to use Issues in Law and Medicine instead of, say, a more popular OBGYN journal? Well, you know, the, the logical thing would be that this is related to pregnancy. We should look for an OBGYN journal, and I definitely consider that. However, with comments like those from ACOG that are clearly prejudicial, and that there have been many of them before, I really felt that it was going to slow things down too much and that our, our chance of being published in, in a journal like that would be very, very small because of, of their huge bias that they've demonstrated over and over again. So because of that, I knew that, the important thing was to get into a peer-reviewed journal and one hopefully where I could have some sort of open access so the article would be available to people and that um, it was indexed in PubMed and the Library of, of, of Medicine and all of that so people would have access to the article. And so the uh, issues in law and medicine fit the bill. They're peer-reviewed. They've published a lot of great articles. So I went to them, and they accepted it for publication. I'm, I'm very proud that it's in that journal, and I'm proud that it's uh, available to all. You can you can go on their journal, and they've, they've agreed to offer this article uh, no charge. So you can go to issuesinlawandmedicine.com or .org, one or the other, and um, there you can get the article for free. So I encourage people to, to visit their website and, and get a copy of the article. If you just joined us, you're listening to Dr. Doctor on Redeemer Radio, where Chris Stroud and I are interviewing Dr. George Delgado about his groundbreaking and life-saving work with abortionpillreversal.com. And we can also link that article on our website because it's not a difficult article to read. No, it's, it's excellent. It's outstanding. And um, what you say about the American College is just so true. I was giving a, a birth control pill talk at a medical conference this weekend here in Indiana uh, and describing the pill as an abortifacient, and I mentioned ACOG. And a young medical student, in all sincerity, said to me, well, what's happened to ACOG? Why is it so pro-abortion? And he, he really caught me off guard because I didn't have an answer for him. 
I said, I don't, I don't know. I've been around doing this 24 years. I think they've just lost their way. Um, but w- what has your experience been in, in that regard? Well, my experience is that you know, mainline OBGYN is heavily, heavily pro-abortion. There's, there's absolutely no doubt about it. And I think um, that um, the, the profession has really lost its way. And I think it's the, the whole notion where, you know, before we really were considered ourselves stewards of, of health and individually stewards of our body. We took care of our body, took care of our health, and took care of other people's health. But now the paradigm has really shifted so that instead of being stewards, people consider themselves masters of their own bodies. Mm-hmm. And that is how uh, we got to the place where you know, a woman has the right to abort her unborn baby because she's the master of her body instead of the steward of her body. And the same goes with um, different uh, reproductive techniques that, that violate the natural law and violate the integrity of, of the marital embrace and that lead to the destruction of um, embryos and the freezing of embryos, just, you know, a total disregard for the dignity of these human persons because, again, we see ourselves as masters instead of stewards. And I think we, we the, the profession has really lost sight of that, and I think it spills over into the, the whole euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. We're, again, uh, trying to be ma- uh, masters instead of stewards. And so we've lost that um, that noble calling, unfortunately. Yeah, it's really it's sad, but very, very well articulated on your part. Thank you. I, I would like you to arm our listeners with some ammunition. And that is ACOG came out with certain criticisms of your article that uh, some of our listeners might hear from their friends. So if you could say, you know, what were some of those main criticisms and how would you respond to them? Yeah. Well, I didn't read that ACOG press bulletin itself, but I, I have read the comments that go on and on and on and have been going on for, for a few years now. One of them is that this is, quote, junk science, unquote. <laughs> yes. And to that I say it's not junk science, it's new science. And I would say that there are three pillars of support for what we're doing. Number one is that it makes biological sense. Whenever anybody has studied molecules that compete for the same receptor, we know that if you increase the concentration of one, that that one's going to win out and it's going to get to the receptor more often. And that's what we're doing here. We're raising the concentration of progesterone, so it's going to beat the mifepristone to the receptor. Number two is that we have an animal model. We have studies of rats where there are pregnant rats. One group was given mifepristone only. The other group of pregnant rats was given mifepristone and progesterone. The group that got mifepristone only aborted all of their pups. The group that got mifepristone plus progesterone, depending on which dosage of progesterone, either all of the pregnancies continued or most of them continued. So it showed there that the progesterone definitely blocks the effect of mifepristone. And now you have our large study here, which is a large case series, which they can no longer ignore. This is in the medical literature. This is published. This is real science right here. It's not randomized control, but like I said, that's the next step. But Many things we do in medicine are not governed by randomized controlled trials. And in fact, we do a lot based on observational case series. And some some of those studies would be unethical to do in a randomized controlled trial. Exactly. Absolutely. And then the other thing that sometimes say this is off-label use of progesterone, that progesterone is not approved to be used in this fashion. Well, you, all three of us know that <laughs> off-label use of medication is all the time. In fact, yes, you as an obstetrician know that the only drug that has the FDA label for preterm labor is Ritadrine, and that's the one you use least likely, <laughs> right? And exactly. so this happens all the time, and it's perfectly acceptable, so that, that argument doesn't hold water. And the third point they're bringing up against you, George, which I find laughable if it weren't so sad, is that this option you're offering to women is unethical. unethical. <laughs> yeah, Right. How, how could it be unethical if it follows good scientific guidelines, the medication is safe, and it's now proven to be effective, and women are asking for it? There's, there's nothing, nothing unethical about that. The other thing they say is that women rarely, if ever, change their minds, so it's not worth it to even do this. Wait, wait. Women rarely change their minds. Tom, go easy. Your wife is listening. <laughs> she probably is. All human beings change their minds. All human, exactly. And, and what I say is that is, well, even their studies show that conservatively, you know, a small percentage of women, let's say we say 10% of women would change their mind. If there are 300,000 medical abortions in our country every year, which that's about right, 
then that would mean 30,000 women would be seeking this or at least wanting to know about it. So you're going to tell me that because you don't agree with it, that you're going to deprive 30,000 women a year of having the option to discuss reversal of their mefepristone. That, to me, is unethical, and that, to me, is not honoring women, and that, to me, is not pro-women at all. You sound very pro-woman, George, and I'm glad to know you now. (laughs) It's interesting. We've encountered this in so many times with the the culture has been able to set the rules to say if you are anti-abortion, or even worse, maybe, anti-contraception, you are anti-woman. It's funny how that argument has been constructed now that it's a it's a societal norm. To be pro-woman, you have to be pro-abortion and pro-contraception. Isn't that odd? It is quite odd, especially when you consider that more females are aborted than males are aborted. Yes. And so how can you possibly be pro-woman if you're aborting all of these females? It doesn't make sense to me. You know, one thing I noticed in your study, another number that's buried deep down there, is that you worked with 325 different physicians. I think that is phenomenal that you got this many physicians to work together in such a noble cause. Right, it was, and it also added a, a great deal of uh, richness to the study because, for example, the high-dose oral protocol, there was a group in in, in uh, Orange County, the Obria Clinics, who actually devised that. They came up with it on their own, and we started seeing that they were having great success rates, so we saw that signal in our data, so we coned down on that, and we saw that, yes, indeed, this really works better. And so it was really that that innovation of different uh, physicians in the study that, that really made a difference. Now, I also saw, and correct me if I read this wrong, but that there were several different intramuscular injection doses, and that w- if you were given seven dosages or more, they had an 80 to 90 percent carriage rate. Is that true, or was the data too small to accept that? That's true. Well, there, there are relatively small numbers. When in, in the group that got six to eight injections, there were only eight, nine patients. But when you got to nine to 10 injections, there were 10, and then 11 or more, 19. And you see that you're right looking at the data that way. There was a plateau there. There was a plateau effect. It didn't get any better than you, once you got there. So we're thinking that maybe seven injections might be the magic number. And so okay. that's going to be something we, we look at in our uh, upcoming trial. Well, we're, we're near the end. George, what final thoughts would you like to share with our listeners? What I would tell them is, uh, you know, let people know about this, that mifepristone RU46 medical abortion is very common, 30 to 40 percent of all abortions in our country, and that women do have a second chance at choice. If they change their mind, we have treatment for them, and the treatment now has been demonstrated to be very safe and very effective. George, thank you for being with us. Another one of your taglines is, it may not be too late to save a life. God bless you and the work you are doing. And stay tuned for more Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to the final segment of Dr. Doctor, where now I get to answer the medical trivia question. If our listeners are driving, they should probably pull over to the side. That's right. And take out your calculators. (laughs) No, put down your smartphones and listen. Here's the question. I have heard it frequently stated that it is harder to get into veterinary school than medical school. Is that true or is it a myth? Tom, they let me and you in medical school. I think anybody could go. I think so. I think it's it's very true. (laughs) I think medical school is often more passion-driven than intelligence-driven, but who am I to say? That's for another show. That's for another show. Well, going to the websites of the AAVMC, that's the Association of American Veterinary Medical Colleges, it states that just under 50% of applicants get into vet school, uh, and their applicant-to-seat ratio is about 1 to 8, which means they actually have about a 56% acceptance ratio based on that. The American Association of Medical Colleges in 2017-18, for which we have the most recent data, has about a 43% acceptance rate. So it seems that it's a little bit easier recently to get into vet school than it is to medical school. But there's not this big difference that people have been led to believe. And I think part of the reason it seems harder to get into vet school is there's so, so few, few of schools. them. Yeah. yeah, they're hard to get into. It's a statistical challenge. Yes. there's uh, Many states don't have an in-state school. In fact, many states have reciprocity where you can apply 
you know, with in-state rights to a neighboring state that has a school if your state doesn't. You know, Tom, you and I both have college-age kids, and so we're sensitive to these things. But imagine uh, the veterinary student is going to encounter incredible debt, yet their earning potential when they leave veterinary school is not as great as other professions. So they have to be very dedicated uh, to that field of study because it's going to be difficult. Oh, all the vets I've met are incredibly dedicated and incredibly intelligent. I mean, look, they do have to learn multiple species. I, I used to joke, oh, I've got it easy. I just have to learn one species. <laughs> so, no, I really respect uh, vets and all the hard work they put in, and they must really love what they do. And arguably, they play such a critical part in the lives of families oh, because yes. of the role our pets play in our lives. Uh, our vet sure does. <laughs> He loves our cats. Okay, and interestingly, the hardest medical school to get into with a 2% acceptance rate is Mayo Medical School. And the most difficult and the easiest medical school to get in uh, is the Arkansas College of Osteopathic Medicine. Thanks for not saying my medical school. I appreciate that. <laughs> oh, I thought you were in Arkansas. No, you yeah. weren't in Arkansas. But still, it's just a 25% admission rate. So a one in four chance is, quote, easy. That's still a big challenge. It is. of people are not being accepted. Well, Chris has a story he wants to share with us again. Chris, he must be a great storyteller with their kids, and now he's (laughs) sharing that gift with us. You know, we we are blessed with uh, Dr. Delgado's research, and it really calls to mind an abortion experience that I had. I got a phone call one afternoon from somebody that we all know and love and respect, and her name is Kathy Homburger with Allen County Right to Life. And she asked me if I would get involved with an abortion save. Not the kind of abortion save that Dr. Delgado was talking about. This was a young woman that was going to go and have a surgical abortion. So I got involved, uh, and over about an hour, we were able to set up a FaceTime, Skype video conference uh, with this young woman. Now, interestingly, she was in a car. (laughs) She was in the passenger seat holding her phone up. Oh, my goodness. uh, With these two other women who were associates of Kathy Homburgers uh, in another state. Um, and now we're suddenly connected via technology wow. across half the country. And these women are trying hard to counsel her out of going to this abortion appointment. And it's for the following day. Oh. And so we're down to the wire. But th- the thing that I find most remarkable about the story is this was a beautiful young woman who the story is probably way too common and that... Um, the father of her baby, her boyfriend, when learning that she was pregnant, became violent, uh, beat her up, and left her. Uh, And she responded, sadly, by trying to take her own life by overdosing on caffeine pills. Fortunately, it didn't succeed, but it did stop her heart. Uh, She had to have cardioversion, CPR, um, and a lot of intervention. But she survived just fine. So then she went to her local Planned Parenthood affiliate, uh, and they told her, and I'm just repeating what the young woman told me, they told her that she really needed to have an abortion because there was no way the baby could be normal after the cardioversion and the caffeine. And they have no science to back that up. Absolutely none, none whatsoever. Um, So I'm trying to talk with her via a bad connection over video FaceTime. Um, that That isn't true. And then... As I mentioned with our guest, I don't think a woman ever chooses abortion. I think they find themselves unable to choose anything else. Um, She had been uh, a special needs child and had uh, cleft lip and palate repair done. And uh, when they told her that her baby wouldn't be normal, (laughs) uh, she immediately felt her own pain from her own childhood and from, uh, I'm sure, much of the torment she probably suffered with having a craniofacial defect. And so it made perfect sense to her that the smart thing to do was not to abort the baby. Uh, We worked. We worked hard. We talked to her. We pleaded with her. We tried to get her truth. And what she was missing more than anything else was truth. Um, But arguably, I suppose if there was one thing she was missing more than truth, uh, it it was love Love. uh, and support uh, because she was alone. Uh, Like so many, far too many young women find themselves completely alone. Uh, And I think we have to remember in the pro-life community when we're talking to women who maybe have had an abortion or contemplating abortion, they're not happy about this decision. And they're not making this decision because it makes sense, it's intellectual, it's logical, or they have an agenda. Uh, They're making it because 
they feel lost and alone, and they're afraid of being alone, and they really see no way out of this dungeon in which they've found themselves. So we talked to this young girl for hours. Uh, we called her back. We talked to her some more. Uh, we lost her. Sadly, oh. uh, she w- she went through with with the abortion, but not be- not uh, because of uh, a lot of people trying really hard to convince her otherwise. I think at one point we actually reached her. You could see her facial expression change uh, when I said, look, those two women that are with you, they'll take your baby. They'll adopt your baby, and they'll help you get the health care you need to deliver a good, healthy baby, and then they'll find a loving family for it. And she, you could see a sparkle in her eye for just a second. And then sadly, because the devil is real, yes. um, we, we lost that battle. We, we don't win all the battles, do we? But we do win some. And that's why we keep fighting. Uh, But whenever I think of her story, I I try to remind myself, we have to be careful in the pro-life community and really think about the person behind that bad decision and the pain that they're suffering on the way to that decision. You know, I've heard it said by somebody wiser than me that if I were in that position, I would probably be choosing the same way they are because they don't have the same life experiences knowledge or love that I've been surrounded with. Yeah, that's well said. It's certainly true. It's Im- it's impossible to get into that mindset. Um, and what they're missing, as we said, more than anything else is love, love and support. Um, and then I think we have to remember when we're talking to women that have had an abortion, that uh, none of them are happy about it. Most of them are devastated by it. And many of them carry that pain for the rest of their lives, destroying relationships, the inability sometimes to become pregnant again, the inability to have functional and good and healthy relationships. So um, we have to try to change their minds. But We have to do it in love and charity, don't we? Oh, absolutely. And what a better person to do it than my partner right here, Dr. Chris Stroud. I'm so happy <laughs> that radio voice, radio face and all, he is interfacing with young women who are pregnant and helping them have beautiful, healthy babies. Uh, what, what a show. Lifesaver, Dr. George Delgado. What a, what a gift of God he is to yeah, so let's, many. Let's pray for him and his work. Amen. Let's do it, and we'll ask our listeners to do it the same. This has been another exciting episode of Dr. Doctor. Thank you for listening. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. Thank you indeed for listening. Remember that your medical decisions are important. So make good decisions. Choose wisely. Choose Catholic.